Good. For the last um, four weeks, I, I have mostly spoken about what I believe to be nitty-gritty of practice, details, attentional focus, funny Pali words which I try to explain and ferry across into practical usefulness. Uh, let me open the lens a bit for tonight. And um, I'd like to speak of my understanding of the life the Buddha, more precisely the life story of the Buddha, and some of the features of the life story as it uh, has come down to us in history. Um, until a couple of years, we seem to be quite sure when the Buddha actually has lived. Uh, the general consensus was that it was 560 BC to 480 BC, and this is nobody who is serious in the business does believe that anymore. Um, the Indologists have no real uh, new alternative dates, but they are practically all in agreement that these dates do not uh, actually hold true. The received wisdom is the Buddha has lived probably as much as 80 years later than that, so. Uh, we have to think of the Buddha having been um, living in the, rather than the 6th and the 5th century, we have to think of him having lived in the 5th and to the 4th century BC. So, if we look at the life of this being in the texts that have come down to us, one of the things that is noticeable is that the earliest layer of these texts does not actually say an awful lot about the Buddha's biography. If we want to get a biography from the Buddha, we have to glean bits and pieces in the Pali Canon. We have to um, put these little scratches together and try to crystallize out of those gleanings a, a story. The actual stories we have, and as you can imagine, the later tradition has put much emphasis on the life of the Buddha as the uh, quasi-symbolical uh, life story of uh, the archetypal quest. And if we want to wait till we have a full-fledged story, it's hundreds and hundreds of years before we have the first real, genuine Buddha biography. They are rather poetical and uh, uh, rather, uh, over the centuries that follow, have a tendency to grow, as uh, is easily imagined. But if we look at the story of the Buddha, we do find a few key features. You know, the tradition tells us um, that there are a number of key moments in uh, the life of Siddhartha Gautama, and later in the life of uh, Buddha Shakyamuni, which um, they do boil down to a number of features. One of the features is an extraordinary birth. Now, anthropologists tell us that every big religious tradition starts off with an extraordinary birth. Yeah. No religious founder really has had, a, I would say, gynecologically normal kind of birth. You know? yeah. In the Buddha's history, this is no different. His mother was on her way home to her 
to her mother. It was custom in India to return to your maternal family to give birth and was surprised uh, on the way there with uh, the sudden onset, onset of labor. And is, so we are, it is reported she was given birth to the Buddha standing, you know, holding on to uh, a tree. Um, which, from an obstetric point of view, was maybe not the worst thing to do, you know, under the circumstances. Um, there are other traditions who do not uh, favor the lying down posture for birth, as seems to be the received wisdom nowadays. Uh, what was somewhat unusual is that the Buddha was able to walk straight away, did seven steps, and apparently has left his mother's womb sideways. Yeah, which is somewhat <clears throat> unusual, if I am to understand it correctly. <laughs> I think, uh, while from a gynecological point of view, this is difficult to fathom, or the health of this, uh, it does, I think, uh, fulfill the archetypal necessity to uh, qualify as an extraordinary birth. The Buddha then has a privileged youth, um, as the only son, is the uh, eye apple of his dad. And his dad is given a prognosis right at the beginning, prognostication that his son either will be a world-governing ruler, yeah, a chakravatim, or else the, the leader of a new sect. And uh, you can imagine you know, what your dad would have liked you to become if he had been given this option. And, the Buddha's dad was no, no real exception to this and has definitely preferred his son to become a world-ruling monarch rather than a you know, sect leader. So the legend has it that the Buddha was uh, spoiled as much as was possible and that it was um, that great efforts were made that the Buddha would not come to um, think of life as something unworthy or anything that might have encouraged his spiritual pursuits. So uh, great effort were, were, efforts were undertaken that the Buddha would live comfortably and be entertained. And um, the legend has it that he was protected from the sight of sick people and old people and uh, certainly from death. He was um, married, 16. Um, and has um, first lived uh, with his family and later with his spouse, and uh, only gradually was made aware of certain features of life. Um, the legend tells us then he had three or four big outings, secretive outings uh, with a charioteer who was later to become a monk, a troublesome monk for that. Uh, but he was um, a man who was understanding the young Prince Siddhartha's needs. He, he was seeking a greater authenticity uh, outside of the palace walls and in those clandestine outings with his charioteer, the Buddha or the Siddhartha uh, then faced suddenly the recognition that there are things like old age, sickness and death. People. Um, assailed by those conditions he met on any of his outings. And on each of these outings, he returned, 
quite dismayed, questioning his charioteer and um, wondering what happened to those people he met, you know, meeting a sick person, meeting um, an elderly uh, wobbly person, and finally meeting the procession of a uh, group, a cortege of people who were gathered around uh, the dead body of a departed one. And on each of these returns, the Buddha is greatly concerned and um, gradually realizes, with the help of his compassionate charioteer, that this is not just happening to other people, but this is happening to himself as well, that he, this is in store for him as well. So, on the last and the fourth outing, the Buddha meets a Samana, a religious wanderer, who uh, seems to be clearly on a different path than most of the people he has met so far. And somehow this religious wanderer becomes the emblem of an alternative lifestyle. It becomes the emblem of a possibility of how he could uh, find an escape from the conditions of mortality, of aging, and of uh, a vulnerable health. So the Buddha returns. By now he is married for a number of years and he is just uh, father. And he returns and obviously the dismay of his existential encounters has deeply settled in and he does not find any comfort or solace in the life of his palace and the life uh, of his young family. And this is hard to stomach for us. Uh, one night he decides to leave the court, his young child and his young wife, and seeks what is now understood to be as the great leaving home, the great Pabaja, the going forth into homelessness, um, and a pursuit that leads him outside of the career envisaged by his father and outside of what we understand to have been the boundaries of his establishment. For us, this is quite difficult to swallow that a man leaves behind his wife and his uh, young child. While this is not unthinkable, we probably would not find that a very worthy thing to do. The best I, I can make out of this is that he had left his wife and his child in the care of a functioning extended family, but there is a poignancy in this move outside of his family um, and leaving his wife, who was certainly not happy about this, and leaving his uh, young child, who would have certainly needed him for the coming years. Um, this is hard to take for us. This is, goes pretty much counter my conditioning and it does counter what I would actually recommend. In fact, my monastic uh, father would have not accepted me if I had had a child, I'm quite sure. It was one of his conditions for accepting young men into the community that they had no such responsibilities or had uh, fulfilled such responsibilities to the best of their abilities. So the young Buddha, the young Prince Gotama, to be correct, uh, secretly left that palace and cut his hair and beard and uh, returned, um, let the Chantaka re return um, with his uh, clothing. And uh, we are told that the 
flight from the palace was aided by devas who covered the hoofs of the riding animal so that no sound was audible. The Buddha then goes into a period of austerity for many years and in that austerity uh, as encounters with teachers we uh, are given to understand that he's met two teachers um, who one will have been a Upanishadic teacher and the other one probably uh, a yogic teacher. There is much speculation about those, but uh, given the Buddha's familiarity with the Upanishadic teachings, as we can surmise from his later teachings as an awakened teacher, um, it is probably reasonable to assume that he had familiarity with some of the um, religious teachings that abounded in his day. As you may be aware, there have been obviously an established Brahminical uh, religious tradition for which there was no such thing as a, a going forth into homelessness. Um, and there has been a counter-movement of which we understand the Buddha now to have been part of, namely um, movement, later to be called the Upanishadic movement, um, full of differing religious seekers and wanderers who were felt to be anti-establishment in those days and who did uh, leave their home lives. They, some of them left home to live quite ascetic lives. Some of them were into all kinds of colorful uh, practices and some of them were simple wanderers. Most of them had the definite sense that they could do something about their liberation. It was not enough to placate the gods and it was not enough to live a ritually good life as uh, the Brahminical teachings would have had it, but it was necessary to undertake some form of arduous training to obtain freedom. This was a big thing. A big understanding was we are not doing uh, ritually our service anymore. We are trying to understand something and by such understanding we become free. Yeah? That was a big idea. Central theme in uh, Upanishadic tradition is something like a, a Gnostic. We can do something to understand more deeply rather than just live um, obediently within the framework of, say, uh, a Brahminical vision of life which uh, appreciated family life as the greatest richness, uh, which had uh, the vision to be rich, to have many cows and many sons, and to live 120 years of age. Yeah? That was a vision of a full life. So the Upanishadic tradition differed from that somewhat and felt it was necessary to undertake more distinct steps, steps that also led outside of the established forms of religiosity in those days. And the Buddha, I think, was simply one of them in his day. We have understood now that one of the things he um, distinguished himself from other uh, members of this religious movement was that he very early on formed a group of disciples and he um, organized his disciples in more stringent ways than many of the other teachers did. Most of those movements uh, from those days have died out. One, 
notable one is the Jaina tradition is uh, older than the Buddha, Buddhist tradition and still extant. It's not very uh, numerically strong, but um, they are wonderful people. If you ever have the opportunity to visit a Jain temple or a, a Jaina Dharamsala, a guest house, uh, do not hesitate. These are uh, uh, usually very wonderful people. So the Buddha or Shakyamuni, uh, having his period of asceticism, seeking, uh, is taken up into two schools, both of which um, he uh, is given a, he's a gifted disciple there. In, in one of the schools he is offered uh, co-teaching and uh, the other man offers him, in fact, the school and thinks of retirement. Uh, and the Buddha does not accept those offers but he feels that whatever he has learned there, and whatever he has understood from these teachings, that they do not fulfill his vision of happiness and freedom, which is, I think, an interesting, an interesting thought, that he has obviously sensed a deep dissatisfaction even after having succeeded within the framework of those two schools. And then... The story goes on that we have a couple of, you know, the plot thickens, as, as we would say, if we we're going for drama. We have a couple of, of, of close-ups, yeah? So far, this has been fairly open zoom. Now we have more close-ups, and there are differing scenes in there. One of the scenes is uh, the Buddha is going into a heavy ascetic form of practice together with uh, five men who would later become his uh, almost first disciples. And he is looked upon as the most promising of them. And uh, he is fasting. And his fasting is quite arduous. Uh, the, the suttas are um, strong in the description. They describe that his skin was dark and um, that his, um, when he touches his belly, he would feel uh, his spine, uh, uh, the vertebrae of his spine, and that uh, when squatting down to urinate, that he would lose his um, balance because he was so emaciated. And at some point, he feels that he has weakened himself to the degree that he does not actually make any progress in meditation. And uh, there's a powerful turning moment where he receives from uh, a shepherd girl uh, some milk rice and accepts that milk rice, despite uh, his agreement with his fellow ascetics to fast. And upon nourishing himself, he starts to feel better, but his colleagues turn away from him and uh, uh, decry him of having given himself to, to abundance again. So they turn away from him, and he's on his own. By now, he is 35. He has given up what one can give up. Um, his dad had had great hopes that he would overtake, uh, take over his uh, the governance of the province of which he was a governor. Um, he has left a wife and a child behind. He has left a career as a kshatriya. He would have had a, the career as a noble. Um, the luxuries, he has been offered the leadership of two spiritual movements or co-leadership of two spiritual movements. 
And all this he has left behind. One can probably not leave behind much more. Yeah? Given his privileges, his background, it is probably difficult to imagine that he could have left behind more than he actually has left behind. And in this situation, his spiritual co-ascetics, his sahadamikas, turn away from him in disgust. And I can't help but feel that he must have felt quite lonely at that moment. Yeah. He had given up so much. He was 35 and he had basically nothing in his hands. The realization he set out to find he had not had. Companionship, he had no longer the background, privileged as it was, he had given up and could no longer return to. So I imagine that at this moment, he must have felt somewhat a failure. Um, if I'm trying to envisage how he must have felt, then this must have been the low point in his career. Given up everything, practiced as hard as he could, and not gained anything. And strangely, I have always found it a very inspiring moment, because um, as inspiring a Buddha is, a fully awakened being, which in some way manifests in human form the timeless realization of the Dhamma, uh, it is a bit lofty, it is a bit elevated, it is a bit, you know, I am a bit outsized by that. But kind of identifying with somebody who has practiced hard, who has given up everything, and who does not seem to get anywhere. That I found quite easily to identify with. Who, you know, hand on our hearts, who hasn't felt that way? We've put in lots, we've given it our best, and still it didn't deliver. Who hasn't been there? So that moment, and this is fascinating, the scriptures are quite clear about this. Um, there is no doubt that at that moment he recalls the memory. Imagine the memory of an experience he has had as a very young child. There is a man, 35, having given up much, having given everything to practice, having shown every sign of willingness to hardship, austerity, dedication. And then this man experiences a turning point in his practice by recalling the memory of a mental state he has experienced as a young child. And that memory is that he has lain in the shadow of a, <clears throat> of a rose apple tree. A rose apple, those of you who don't know, is a wonderfully um, perfumed fruit, uh, very juicy. And it's, in fact, the Indian name of India, yeah? Chambudvipa, the island of the rose apple, is the name uh, what the Indian tradition calls uh, the continent or the subcontinent of India. So under such this uh, small tree, the Siddhartha, probably at the ceremony of his father presiding over the creation of the first furrow, which is a fertility right for their land and the king was asked or the governor was asked to create the first furrow and in that situation the young Siddhartha was uh, aloof in the shadow of such a uh, rose apple tree and quite shielded one imagines that he was aware of the presence of other humans and the festivities around him but yet uh, 
aside and aloof, and he experienced a jhanic state in that moment. This is the memory that comes to our 35-year-old Siddhartha, and he asks himself, might it be possible that I could cultivate a quality of mind that is based on this aloof, still, blissful experience? Might this be a path rather than the hardship and the control and the rigor of my ascetic practices? And this is what he continues to do. And the next big sequence, the next big close-up is uh, approaching the full moon day of May, Vesaka Puja, and he is alone on the banks of the Naranjana River in what is today Gaya, uh, Bodh Gaya to be precise, and he practices under uh, Ficus religiosa, the Bodhi tree, of which you have a very nice uh, specimen standing down the corridor. And he makes a vow that he will not get up without having gained realization. And at that moment, Mara the Evil One uh, turns up. Mara the Evil One is a very interesting figure. Um, sometimes he's a devil, sometimes he's just um, a kind of sub god, one of the Mara gods who um, basically guards the realm of the sensual realm. So Mara always gets nervous when somebody threatens to leave the sphere of his influence, yeah. either through meditative depth, we can escape the um, kama loka by meditative refinement, by ascending into jhanic uh, meditative states, and thus, thus leaving the kama loka and arriving at the uh, uh, rupa lokas, the finer, fine material spheres. So that is one thing that makes him nervous. But what really makes him nervous if a being threatens to leave the sphere of his influence for good, not just you know, temporarily through a meditative state, but actually by freeing his heart from uh, all shackles. So this is the moment Mara turns up and sends the boys round. So we have the Buddha alone with a vow to not get up until his realization. And we have the forces of darkness. The Mara is referred to in, in many ways. One of them is called the Dark One. Yeah. So the Hindu tradition refers to the Dark One as Krishna, so do not confuse that. Uh, these are two very different people. In the Buddhist tradition, Kanha, the Dark One, is Mara, is the being that stops other beings from becoming free that which holds beings in bondage. Yeah. Sometimes he is called Namuchi, sometimes he is called the Evil One, um, and so forth. There's a couple of names. Sometimes he is um, a very concrete obstruction. There's a text in the middle-length things where Mara actually sits, I think it is in Mogalana's gut. Yeah? So we have Mara quite concretely as a, a, a gastric obstruction. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes Mara is subtle. 
Um, sometimes he's not so subtle. And uh, at that moment, Mara, which is re referred to in a text in the Sutta Nipata, approaches the Buddha very, apparently very compassionately. Let me read that too soon. Yeah. It's very sweet. And it shows you something about his, uh, his tricks. So Mara comes up to him, says, um, comes up to him and says, um, you are so emaciated and ill-looking. You're near death. A thousand parts of you belong to death and only a fraction of you is alive. Live, good sir. It is better to live. Living, you may perform meritorious deeds. From practicing celibacy and tending to sacrificial fire, much merit is made. But what is obtained from striving? It is difficult to enter the path of exertion. It is difficult to do, difficult to maintain. So speaks Namuji. That's an interesting name. Namuji means basically one who does not let go. Yeah? So Mara Namuji is the guy who does not let go of you if you want to become free. He's the guy who holds you back. So Mara here apparently, compassionately, come, come, you know, look after yourself. Don't be so hard on you. Stop with all that striving. Pat, 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 pat. Yeah? And the Buddha doesn't take it. You are the friend of the negligent, O evil one. For what reason have you come here? Those who still have use for merit, Mara, may consider worthwhile addressing. I have faith and energy. I have sadda and virya and wisdom. Being thus bent on striving, why do you ask me to live? This wind will wither the currents of the rivers. Why should not my exertion dry up even the blood? When the blood dries up, the bile and phlegm wither. On wasting away of the flesh, the mind becomes more and more serene, and my mindfulness, wisdom, and concentration are established more firmly. In me, who abides enduring such an extreme experience, the mind does not long for sensual pleasures. See the purity of a being. This is about as loud as the Buddha gets. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Acknowledge the purity of this being. This is what he tells Mara. And then, this particular text here uh, speaks uh, of how the ten armies of Mara come. But there are many other texts, and I, I want to tell you something about this, because this is quite fascinating. So, these texts come down to us, some of them very old, before the turn of the millennia, some of them somewhat later, and all agree on the basic outline. What happens is the Buddha is assailed. Uh, first, the Mara speaks to him kindly, and when he realizes the Buddha's determination or the, the, the Bodhisattva's determination to continue his practice and to not let up, Mara um, uh, takes to his arms. And he's quite a formidable guy, and so some of the teachings tell us that Mara has assembled his armies 12 yojanas deep and 9 yojanas wide. A yojana is how much you can drive with a, with a, a cart, with an ox cart in a day. Yeah? So this is about 16, 17 kilometers. So you have an army here, 12 yojanas deep and 9 yojanas wide. And Mara himself uh, takes uh, threatening forms. 
One uh, account has it that Mara grows a thousand arms and mounts an elephant called Grimekala, which means basically girded with mountains. Yeah? So we can assume this has been a pretty sizable animal. So this is his, uh, his, um, his battle elephant. And then the armies of Mara uh, approach. And you see depictions of that, particularly um, Southeast Asian depictions and Tibetan depictions. Usually you see uh, the Bodhisattva sitting there um, encircled by armies that threaten and that attack him with all kinds of weapons. Monstrous things come at him. And most of the time you see in these depictions how the Bodhisattva remains serene and the arms of these armies turned into mandrava flowers. Yeah? So the Bodhisattva's power transforms these uh, attacks into uh, floating mandrava flowers. Speaking of the transformative power of uh, the Bodhisattva's mind and his uh, serene uh, composure. And then uh, Mara does that. Um, here in, in our text, the armies are named. They, they're quite psychological, as much in the Pali canon is. Much of that is psychological. So it says, the first of, my, the first of his armies is sense desire, yeah, karma. I'll quickly read them to you so that we have the correct wording. Sensual desire is your first army. That's the Buddha speaking, addressing Mara. The second is called discontent. The third is hunger and thirst. The fourth is craving. The fifth is sluggishness and laziness. The sixth is fear. The seventh, indecision. And the eighth, disparagement of others and stubbornness. Gain, fame, honor, prestige wrongly acquired. And whoever praises himself and despises others, these, Namuchi, are your armies, the dark ones striking forces. A lazy, cowardly person cannot overcome them, but by conquering them, one gains place. So, let's have a look at those. Ten armies, psychological version of it. Sense desire, this is a big army. Generally, we don't think that sense desire is such of an obstacle, as long as our sense desires are gratified and satiated. Usually the realization how much sense desire is uh, effective in our lives and how powerful it is, this realization only uh, comes to us after we have actually challenged sense desire or we have tried to abstain or even deprive ourselves from sense desire. It's rather like swimming in a river. You know, as long as you swim with the current, you feel actually the current is not very strong. You know, how strong it exactly is, you generally only find out if you turn around your chest and you start actually swimming against the stream. Only then you can get uh, a more accurate understanding how strong the pull really is. So we are fairly comfortable folks compared to the degrees of comfort that were possible for somebody, even somebody privileged like the Buddha, we all live very comfortably. Um, you may not think of yourself as being highly sensual or highly indulgent in senses, but I can assure you we are all accustomed to considerable degrees of comfort. Um, just warmth, cleanliness, Diversity in food, uh, ease of a thousand things we do. 
um, warm water, electricity. Just imagine how people have lived here 300 years ago. One of the Tibetan teachers who I've visited and was saying, I am very inspired by the texts of these Dzogchen masters. I am really deeply touched. But when I try to imagine how these guys lived, yeah, sitting in smoky yurts and uh, consuming rotten yogurt, um, I, I'm in awe that they have cooked up these texts, that they have written these texts. I barely can understand these texts. But these guys actually have had the realization to put that down in words. Yeah. And I, who live here in all comfort with education and hot water and um, all the niceties of modern life, um, I'm in deep respect and all when I consider under what circumstances these insights have come down to us. Yeah. So I think sense desire uh, is an interesting one. Once we start to actually challenge the habits and the comfort seeking of our bodies and of our um, tendencies, uh, then we recognize this is a big issue. We are deeply, deeply entrenched in a, a seeking of gratification on a sensory level. It does make sense that this is an army. It does make sense that this is something that stops us. The comfort seeking, uh, maybe less the seeking of ecstatic pleasures, but more the seeking of comforts, certainties, the domesticity of our lives. That seems to be a more powerful army than the actual outright looking for, say, the biggest bang for our buck or something like that. I think the, just the habituation in the way we appreciate or get used to, to be honest, uh, the amenities that our civilization is so famous for. This is a powerful army. And if you have not challenged your own bodily needs, your own bodily habits, your seeking of comfort, warmth, coziness, uh, pleasantness, uh, contrast, variety in what you eat and what you look at, what you think about. Consider karma not just to extend on the five outer senses, but also to extend uh, the sixth sense base, namely your um, manas, what you can think of, what you can conceive of, what you can imagine. So that includes your reading, that includes your entertainment. Uh, this is very much part of uh, the first army here. If you notice how important these things can get, then you will probably acknowledge that this is an army that keeps human beings from striving, from holding us back in a world in which these things can be obtained and our wishes can be gratified. The second of those army <clears throat> is interesting. It's arati, discontent. Our culture is particularly good at breeding discontent. I think um, if Western culture has uh, any, uh, is the breeding ground for anything in particular, then discontent is something we were very good at. You know, our, our societies are competitive, and our degree of habituation to niceties also makes, you, makes us easily discontent. The more we have learned to enjoy 
the more easily that capacity that is capable of such enjoyment is also insulted. I have been a tea drinker for many, many years in my life. And when I arrived at a Buddhist monastery in my very early 20s, I had already uh, a great culture of tea drinking uh, cultivated. I had a teapot and I had threatened all my people if they'd ever approached that teapot with things like soapy dishwasher and uh, nasty things like herb teas or so. Yeah. I would do horrible things to them if they got at my teapot, yeah, my clean Chinese teapot. When I arrived at the monastery, I couldn't quite keep up that standards. There had big aluminium, you know, those Alzheimer-inducing aluminium pots, yeah. <laughs> and some unsophisticated French anagarica would kind of bring a handful of tea bags, just throw them into lukewarm water and gradually bring it to the boil. So my, my tea culture immediately turned into a highly painful experience because every tea I had savored so far in my life now was a painful memory in view of the immediate experience of this unspeakable brew that I was served there on a daily basis. And the really bad thing was, you know, after having <clears throat> been conceited for a few days, I basically gave in. It was nice, it was warm, it was sweet, it was the only thing going. And to my horror, I actually, you know, descended into the Netherlands of consumption and drunk the stuff henceforth. That was the really disheartening things, that all the years of culture had not really protected me from think, sinking that low. So, the habituation of our senses, the refinement we may have artistically, in terms of social relations, in terms of intellectual refinements, in terms of uh, mind states, all such refinements can uh, quickly turn into painful memories of something we no longer have. Who hasn't ruined his day by having a very, very good meditation very early on in the morning and then for the rest of the day, just feeling not quite up to par anymore. It's easy to hanker after things we have really enjoyed and really appreciated and have given us really an exquisite feeling of intimacy with something. And yet, um, getting back there was a real struggle. So that second army uh, of discontent is something that, that I think is uh, quite widespread in our societies, we find a lot of discontent. I have not had in my upbringing an active encouragement of contentedness. I have been a monastic and uh, for some time and before I actually acknowledged to myself that nothing in my upbringing had ever encouraged me to acknowledge contentedness. No, nothing. I only knew that word as a sort of a self-content, as a kind of conceited, complacent uh, state of mind. That's the only way I have actually ever learned to be content. You know, this was a, a negative attitude to have. Being content meant one gave in, one was lazy, one would stop striving, one would stop being good at something. So coming to a Buddhist teaching which actively encourages content, you know, that was novel. That was really novel. I realized I was completely, I missed out on that one. I drew a blank on that one completely. 
So discontent, arati, uh, also one of Mara's daughter, um, is something I suspect many of you have flirted with in your lives, and particularly in your practice. It often assails ambitious, uh, dedicated spiritual practitioners. They can succumb to discontent quite easily. A very plausible army to me personally. I have certainly done my flirting with Arati on Arati's arm. The third one, hunger and thirst, it's fairly obvious, is need. Yeah, I think we have to translate this as need. There are needs, and these th can bind us back. Needs make us, um, make us dependent. We have needs, and by attempting to go beyond our needs, we generally do not go stronger. This is what happens when we go beyond desire. If we try to go beyond need, usually something atrophies. Yeah. Not acknowledging need means we uh, something shrivels. We uh, experience some form of contraction. Needs cannot be bypassed, not even by spiritually ambitious people, particularly not by spiritually ambitious people. There is such a thing as need. And to distinguish need from greed and need from desire is one of the challenges in the spiritual path. The next army is desire. Again, it's not the comfort here, but it's the desire. And consider desire has many shades. You know, we know tanha, we often speak of desire and uh, greed. But basically, um, the easy bit is the one which we have already covered with kama, which is sense desire. But the next stage Bhavatanha is not at all so easy understood. It is our desire for abstract qualities like love, control, recognition, uh, affection, uh, reward. Um, these are not things that we immediately sensorially experience, but these are things that can occupy much of our ambition. Getting status, getting control, getting uh, safety, getting love uh, can... Uh, be tremendously strong force of motivation in our lives. So the second form of tanha is very, very powerful force in our societies, in our lives. Individually and socially, this is highly documented. People not just suffer by not getting the nice sensory gratification, they suffer by not being given the uh, affection, by not being given um, power, by not being given choices, by not being given status, yeah, we can suffer considerably. The third form of desire is even more outside of the uh, Western uh, notion of the term desire, which is vipavatana, which means the wish to get rid of something. While the second form of desire is the desire that it always takes the deficiency possible, uh, position says, as it is, is not enough, it ought to be more. The third type of desire, just the opposite, it says, as it is, is too much. Yeah? We, not, we need to get rid of 10 kilos. I want to get rid of my anger. I want to get rid of my crabbiness. I want to get rid of the clutter in my life. I want to get rid of all those murky things that pull me off my good intentions. This type of desire is highly rampant in our psyche is highly rampant in our societies. And yet, most of the people I speak about desire, they don't even acknowledge this as, an, as a desire. Yeah. This third type of desire takes the position, as it is, is too much. 
this ought to listen, this ought to stop, this ought to be locked up or shot to the moon or you know, purged or cleansed or expunged or something like that. Yeah? Usually it goes along with some quite violent vicious. Yeah? That may be as harmless as kind of squeezing the last rest of toothpaste out of your tube and then chucking that empty and useless piece of uh, metal away and feeling, ah, my life is free of yet another ugly little futile thing, you know, I've squeezed it out and tuck, this one is gone. I can have a fresh one now. Yeah? Maybe as harmless as that, but often the third type of desire uh, is quite rampant and quite powerful in our apparently spiritual pursuits, yeah? covering uh, considerable degrees of aversion and uh, uh, forms of non-acceptance or write-down self-hatred. Yeah. So this desire uh, has to be understood here in the, the next army, Tanha. The fifth army is called Tinamida, as is the meditational obstacle, stupor and um, drowsiness, lethargy. Don't just think of that as sleepiness. There is something in there that the, the, the Pali word speaks of uh, something thick-skinned, something profoundly insensitive and immobile. Yeah. It is not just overt drowsiness or lack of energy. It is uh, something that is numb in there, so a kind of numbness. Uh, meditators experience that. It may be quite quiet, you know, there may be not many distracting thought, but somehow it feels, everything feels like behind glass, milk, uh, opaque glass, yeah? It's, yeah, it's kind of peaceful, but it doesn't, it's not very alive. Yeah. So numb, that numbness is a big spiritual obstacle in many ways. And here, uh, turns up together with overt lethargy or lack of application. The next of the armies is fear. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Fear, biru here, there are many other terms, but here the term is fear. So we may be afraid. That is something that stops us from growing. Fear is one of the things that takes away our freedom in a very big way. So we may be doing things out of fear. Fear is one of the four great things that hinder our growth. We have the big, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the famous poisons of mind. But you have another classification, which speaks of four agatis, which, are, uh, which include fear. So anything under the influence of fear cannot be trusted. You cannot trust your cognitive process. You cannot trust your affective processes. You cannot trust your perceptions. If fear is in play, a distortion takes place in your mind. So fear is a big obstacle. Every culture, every society has praised people who are fearless, men and women who have gone beyond fear. World literature is full of stories about extraordinary feats done by people who have overcome their fear because we instinctively know that somebody who has gone beyond fear has gone beyond many of his or her uh, ob inner obstacles. So it's no wonder that here is the sixth army we find fear.
The seventh is indecision, vijikicca, which is interesting. Pali has two words for, for, for doubt. One of them is kanka, and the other one is vijikicca. Vijikicca is much the worse. Vijikicca is not being sure what is needed, what is useful, what is wholesome. Yeah? It's not vijikicca when I don't know what's there for breakfast tomorrow morning. This is not a doubt. This is a simple question mark in my mind. It does not affect my ability to practice. There are so many things I don't know. But doubt is when there is a question mark and I have a definite sense that there shouldn't be a question mark about this. Doubt is when I feel I should know this. I cannot live without not knowing this. So Vichikicca has as a consequence dramatic impact, has a dramatic impact. It makes us indecisive. It makes us um, willy-nilly, uh, willy is that the word? Yeah. It makes us vacillate, uh, vacillate. It, it makes us lose direction. It stops us in our tracks. So uh, as, an, as an army, Vijikicha can take us from a moment of we know that's right, that's where we need to go, to complete paralysis. The net effect of doubt is always a form of self-destruction or paralysis. It takes us out of our energy. It takes us out of our understanding. It does a very quick movement on our mind and it stops us from pursuing what we have started to do. So the next army is um, interesting. The eighth is disparagement of others and stubbornness. Or another, a better maybe word would be uh, refractoriness. Yeah. That's an interesting one as a spiritual hindrance. Yeah. Not wanting to learn, not wanting to accept, not wanting to engage with. Yeah. I think it's easy to recognize why, why that is a hindrance or why this is an army of Mara here. It is saying, do not confuse me further. I have made up my mind. Don't give me new facts. I've come to my conclusions already. You know? I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me anything I don't, I, I, I'm supposed to know. Sometimes this is uh, very powerful. We can, can confuse that with independence. We can confuse that with self-reliance. We confuse that, can confuse that with certainty. We may uh, be quite refractory to people clearly seeing things we don't see, clearly willing to help where we feel we don't need help, but we actually do, uh, by dint of blindness or by dint of overestimation. Um, stubbornness is a major obstacle in spiritual life. People who cannot be helped, who get stuck somewhere. I don't need anybody. don't need to listen to people who are less enlightened than I am. Thank you very much. You know, I know what I'm doing. I know where I have to go. You, know, you don't have to tell me anything. If that voice pops up in your mind, you don't have to tell me anything. This doesn't have to tell me anything. There is nothing I could learn here. Be very suspicious of that voice. There's almost certainly something in there that um, is... Um, camouflaged form of stubbornness or of conceit. Yeah. 
I don't need anybody in here. So it's not uh, surprising for me that this turns up here. Then we have a few that are not so obvious. Disparagement of others, stubbornness, fine. Gain, fame, honor, prestige wrongly acquired, and whoever praises himself and despises others. Yeah? These are the, this is a bundle of two. Yeah? Gain, fame, honor, and prestige wrongly acquired are one package, and praising himself and despising others is the other package. That's an interesting one, isn't it? One would think, well, you know, obviously successful people have gains and acquire some fame and honor and prestige. Not all prestige and honor is intrinsically bad. Uh, there are reasons for why people obtain prestige, because they have been extraordinary in their efforts or extraordinary in their generosity, or they may have other virtues. But um, this is difficult stuff. Yeah. When these things come to us, they may do things with our heart uh, that were not obvious and that are detrimental to our own growth. Praising oneself and despising others is a subtle form of establishing conceit. Conceit always, the English word doesn't do justice to the Pali meaning of the term mana. Conceit always is about comparing and deriving status on the basis of judgment about self and about other. I understand the English term conceit to mean that we are haughty, we look down upon another. Um, the Pali meaning of mana is not simply looking down upon others. There is word of a conceit that consists of the other direction, looking up to someone else. You know, having another placed higher than oneself. Pali explicitly speaks of that, the conceit of inferiority, which is also considered a conceit. Thinking others better than oneself is as conceited as thinking oneself better than others in the Pali psychology, which is interesting. And it's very simple to understand why. Even to see oneself, one other as equal as oneself is still comparing. It's still considered a conceit. It's an interesting notion because the linchpin of that psychological dynamic is the comparing mind. A mind deriving a statement about one's own person, one's own progress, one's own gifts or virtues on the basis of comparing in a flattering or in an unflattering way with another. And whatever statement you end up with, it is a self-statement. You know, I'm a little better, I'm equal. I'm a little less good than you. In all three cases, we arrive at a little self, which is going to pay the bill at the end. So these are, the Mar these are Mara's armies. Then the story goes on. Um, Mara sends his three daughters to entice the Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, at that moment. And then something very, very interesting happens. The last guys of Mara's that he suggests that the Buddha has invented his whole struggle, that this whole thing is one huge narcissistic fantasy. You're doing this to just, you, you fantasize yourself in this liberation path, in all your asceticism, in all your exercises. You fantasize all this. This doesn't exist outside of your own solipsistic fantasies. You just 
talk to you've just talked yourself into a, a number of infantile grandiosity here. That's what you're doing, and you're the hero. This is just one huge self-glorification you're pulling off. Didn't quite use those terms, but this is a basic message. And uh, how do you think you have a right to take the seat, the Vatrasana, the diamond seat? This is the seat where Buddhas get awakened. Yeah? How, how do you think you have a right to do that? I have many witnesses, and then he turns to his armies, you imagine kind of 12 yojanas deep, you know, people cheering. Yeah? Uh, <clears throat> and the Buddha says, I, I, there is nothing, there's nobody with me right now. So now something really magic happens. And Buddhist uh, iconography has really uh, picked up on that. And the Buddha calls the earth as a witness. And he touches the earth. This is the gesture here, that lovely statue behind me. See, the Buddha touches the earth, and the famous Bhumisparsha Mudra, and touches the earth and calls the earth as witness. There are many, many accounts. And the earliest ones, the earth just thunders. And he calls the earth for witness and says, please, earth, do testify that this is not just a fantasy of mine I'm experiencing here. Do testify that through countless lives, and particularly through acts of generosity, I have earned my right to sit here on the diamond seat and to experience awakening. This uh, assaulting creature here has many witnesses. I have only you to testify for me. And the earth testifies for the Buddha. The earth comes forth. Um, in the oldest accounts, it is just thundering. And then very early on, we have a female figure turning up. Sometimes the female figure actually emerging, usually in the shape of a beautiful young woman, uh, personified as the great uh, uh, Stavara, the, the great, the enduring one, the, the one who holds. She has many names. Uh, in uh, the Thai tradition, she is called Metorani, from the, gr the great mother that holds. Yeah? So it is very obvious that the Buddhist iconography tradition has quickly understood that you know, early Buddhism is full of men and very few women, uh, if you look at the imagery. And it is striking to see that throughout Southeast Asia, you have, across the differing uh, Buddhist cultures, you have this image of an embodied female turning up at that moment where the Buddha is, albeit invincible, still besieged in his state as a bodhisattva. He's not a free being. He's not a Buddha yet. You know, when he calls uh, the earth as a witness, he has to call, um, that is, I believe, the uh, deeper meaning of this. He calls, basically, the feminine back onto the plan. You know, the male warrior ascetic can maybe become invincible, but he is still not free. You know? And it is only when he calls the earth and the earth testifies for him, um, Mara's uh, armies are routed. How this happens uh, takes different shapes. One of the stories tells us that the earth goddess appears uh, out of a, a rift in the earth itself and then rings her hair. Yeah? And out of this hair 
flow huge streams and Mara's armies are basically flooded. There's a deeper significance because if you do a generous act in the Indian days, um, and even today, meritorious acts of generosity are often accompanied by a libation, by pouring water onto the ground or pouring water into a vessel. You can see that in Burma, you can see that in Thailand, when people pour water and water overflows from one vessel into another vessel. So, um, uh, Shtabara or uh, Dharaniya Mata turning up and wringing her hair is uh, the symbol of all the pouring of water, of donative libation that the Buddha has incurred in previous lives uh, have accrued to such floods of water that they managed to drown out Mara's armies. So this is one, one of the images. The other image is that as the Buddha touches the earth, the earth starts to thunder. So as if I would ring this bell here and with the tap of uh, my hand onto this bell, the bell would start to ring in the, such a way the earth started to thunder six, six by seven times. Yeah. And Mara's armies were afraid and Mara himself was afraid and he realizes that he has lost his battle. He, he says, for seven years I have circled this bodhisattva. For seven years I have circled this ascetic and practitioner uh, in the hope I would find my way in. And he says, like a crow uh, that was circling a stone, the color of fat, I have circled this being in the hope that that stone would give me something to eat, would give me something to, uh, to feed on. And I have, not, I have not had success. And that's at that moment, Mara rolls back and uh, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha becomes uh, Buddha Gautama. It is at that moment where the Buddha realizes full awakening. And obviously, this gesture, as you know, is a famous gesture. Many Buddha statues account for it. It's um, generally here in the West, it's the earth touching mudra. Sometimes the Asian tradition referred to it as the defeat of Mara. Um, and the powerful moment is the moment where the Buddha, having done all that is possible as a man, as an ascetic, as a striving uh, warrior ascetic, you know, as a practitioner uh, with will and dedication and willing to sacrifice and to put his best in. And still this is not enough. You know? And he has to call that which carries him, the earth herself that holds him, that witnesses uh, the countless parameters, perfections he has acquired in previous lives. And in some deep wisdom there, uh, the female comes back into the picture. And it is no wonder that these Southeast Asian traditions have understood this and that this female has, is ubiquitous. If you look in Burma, if you look in Thailand, if you look in, in Cambodia, you see uh, that statue. You see it everywhere. In the monasteries, you see it tattooed onto people's arms. You see it as a puppet. You see it as a picture. You see it as an image. It's really ubiquitous. And it's obvious to me that uh, as a religious tradition has understood to the, the, 
the feminine had to be acknowledged. This is apparent to me. You can see it in other forms of iconography. Women in early Buddhist iconography, and you probably know these statues were more or less against the Buddha. He wasn't the inventor of these statues. These Buddhas, Buddha statues are a Greek invention. It was the Greek craftsman who in Gandhara region in around the first century AD started to create Buddha statues. Greek craftsmen who were left there behind after the Diadoch Wars and the Alexander's um, um, armies invaded India and uh, were left behind when he died, uh, created uh, Greek Indo-Greco-Indian Indo cultures. And these cultures had craftsmanship, the Greeks who had the statue, while the Indians did not have statue. So the, the Greek craftsmen started to depict Indian themes. And we have the first Buddha statues turning up in what is now Afghanistan in the first century AD. And once this started, and the first ones have thick beards, yeah, uh, if you ever try to convince a Thai Buddhist that the Buddha actually has a thick beard, he will look at you in this disbelief. Yeah. So these statues, once they started, they have, <clears throat> by the way, unmistakably Greek, Greek traits. You can see the eyebrows are specifically Greek, and the, the, the Grecan, Grecan nose uh, is very unmistakable. These Buddha statues cannot be stopped. So with Within a very short time throughout the whole Buddhist world, Buddha statues turn up and become objects of veneration and inspiration. So you have a Buddhist iconography that at the beginning only was the wheel and the Dharma seat, you know, the Vatra Asana and, you know, the wheel with the two deer signifying the deer park and uh, the empty traces of the Buddha uh, that had gone the path, but the man was gone, yeah. Or you had... Um, Obviously, the Bodhi tree itself, fleshy, um, leafy sort of uh, tree at the center of many uh, Buddha images. And then, over the centuries, you gradually see the female creeping in. You know, initially, it was just at the margins, kind of lotus holders, holding kind of almost part of the... Um, not really part of the main image, but a kind of decorative items at the, at the margins. And then gradually they kind of, they creep in. Yeah? And about a thousand years, by the year thousand, you have, as far as I know, the first really full-fledged female uh, in the posture of a completely awakened Buddha as a woman uh, in the Vitarka Mudra depicting the teaching of a completely enlightened being has taken Buddhism about 1400 years to get there, uh, to acknowledge uh, full awakening in a female body and to actually depict that. So footnote closed. I do think it is uh, significant that something in that tradition has understood that this cannot be done by male warrior virtues alone. Yeah? The, the Virya and the Adimokha and uh, the other overtly male qualities have to be balanced and uh, with something else that acknowledges um, qualities we would maybe uh, identify more with, with, with the feminine. And I hope you understand I'm not speaking of 
women alone when I speak of the feminine. And the tradition has in instinctively understood this and called, uh, created the whole, something of that wholeness by acknowledging that the Buddha alone uh, could not have done it on his own. He needed the support of an acknowledgement of that which is given, that which is offered, that which has carried him in countless lives. Yeah? I think this is a powerful gesture and a powerful image. And I've always found that a very, uh, one of the most inspiring uh, of the mudras, uh, touching the earth. And if we translate that into what that means for our practice, then it probably means that we not just strive and we not just uh, work with what we experience as obstacles, however good we get at combating Mara's armies, we may still remain besieged. Yeah. We, may be, we may become invincible, but before we become from besieged, invincible ones, truly free beings, we need to acknowledge what is there already. We need to acknowledge what carries us. We need to acknowledge the power of our perfections, the goodness that has brought us into this life. We need to acknowledge this, uh, as the Buddha has acknowledged by calling the earth as a witness. So let me stop here and um, leave that for your reflection. Yeah. Let's take a minute to silence and then finish with our recitation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.